shown to me, and maybe the, one of the clearest examples that I can remember is the power of incremental progress. the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. So I am here today with Yori Chisholm. Yori, I'm going to say, first off, thanks for making this happen. And um, at the time of recording, we're both kind of, we talked before I hit record that it's going to be a little warm where we are. So uh, I appreciate you. I'm, you know, I appreciate you sitting in a hot room talking to me. But I would like to know, the first question I have for you is, and we're going to go through a lot of things, but the first question I have for you is, how long, when you started playing the bagpipes at what, age 11, right? Yeah. How, I say this somewhat tongue in cheek, but how long did it take before you could play it where other people would stay in the room with you? Because <laughs> I've heard people say, you know, I've heard people play the pipes and I was like, oh my gosh. Um, so how long did it take you to get a degree of competency? Not to where you're at now, obviously, but just, you know, competent as a child, as a kid. Well, it's a good, it's a, that's a good question. Funny question. But it is true that um, I think there are some other musical instruments where you can make a beautiful sound uh, earlier in your uh, sort of in your learning progression. So I started when I was an, I was 11. And the way you start learning the bagpipes typically is you start with an instrument called a practice chanter. And okay. a practice chanter, it kind of looks like a recorder. It doesn't have a, a whistle. It has actually has a little reed in there, but it kind of looks like a recorder type thing. And most pipers, they start out on that and you learn the fingering, you learn a couple tunes. If you're new to music, you learn about music theory and rhythm and how to tap your foot and that sort of thing. And most pipers stay on the chanter for six months to a year, maybe longer before you get onto the big pipes. So that was my, you know, that was you know, I just followed that sort of that typical plan and took lessons for about a year on the chanter and then got the pipes. And, you know, that's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a learning process with learning how to blow the thing and keep a steady pressure. And there's also like a physical sort of stamina component to it, as there is with a lot of instruments, you're developing specific muscles and you're building strength and stamina with the piping. It's the embouchure trying to, you know, build the lip strength and then the arm strength and then the breath. Uh, I was fortunate that I, my parents were very supportive, you know, and I always felt like they loved to hear me play. And, you know, I feel the same way with my kids. I have a couple of young kids and when they're taking their music lessons and they're practicing, I just think it's an amazing sound. Even when maybe to somebody else, it's not what they would want to hear, but to hear your own kid, um, you know, practicing and playing and enjoying it and, getting better. That's the no better sound. Right. The, the progress is awesome. So your kids, what are they, what instruments are they learning? So, um, while I'm teaching, uh, my older son, we're doing bagpipe lessons Okay, and, um, they both taken some online mandolin lessons and love that. I just thought the mandolin cool. is such a cool instrument. Um, but particularly I thought for little, little kids, they're six and nine, that would be something more sort of sized, uh, better than uh, like a guitar or something. So they really love that and singing along with their mandolin playing. 
with my older son, Colin, who's nine now, we've been doing something really interesting. And uh, for me, as someone who's been teaching bagpipes for decades, a really interesting, different approach, which is we're doing a lesson every day. And um, he got inspired. I've been doing some exercising and I've been doing some other things that I've been keeping track of my progress on a little chart. And he said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we do a, a, a bagpipe lesson every day for a hundred days? And that was completely oh. his idea. And we've, we've eclipsed a hundred days, but it's been really fascinating and interesting for me as someone who's taught for a long, long time. But the typical music lesson sort of plan is you have a lesson once a week with your teacher or maybe once every two weeks, or maybe twice a week if you're really, really into it. So to do this thing that we're doing together, which is a short lesson every day, it's really interesting just to see how he learns. And I'm, I'm getting some really interesting insights that I'm thinking about and you know trying to make sense of how I can implement those with my other students. Interesting, because my, my son played uh, bassoon, and... Um, not by choice. And um, <laughs> so how does that work? How, how do you, how do you get an instrument? Not by choice. They assign it to you in school or. Um, in this case, it, his mother selected it for him. Okay. And when he came to live with me, um, when he turned 13, uh, part of the agreement was that I would continue to have him take bassoon lessons. Mm -hmm. And so it was a negotiation thing. So anyway, he took bassoon lessons and he was just never into it, mm -hmm. but you could hear when he, when he would practice. I mean, that was the other thing he wasn't practicing consistently, but when, when you, when you, when he practiced and he put his mind to it, you could, you could, I could hear progress with your son and daily. Are you able to, I mean, you're, you're an expert, so you probably are able to discern things, but it's interesting that, you know, with daily lessons, I wonder, do you, is it easier or harder to see if there's progress? Um, well, I can definitely see progress and, you know, maybe on a day-to-day -day basis, it's not, um, you know, maybe it's not something huge on a day-to-day -day basis, but what it has really um, shown to me, and maybe the, one of the clearest examples that I can remember is the power of incremental progress. You know, and we all know that there's this idea you practice and you keep at it and you might not see the daily results, but over time you will see it. But right. we're really noticing it here. And what's different about what we're doing is that it really takes a lot of the pressure off when you're um, doing something every day like this. It's a bit of a departure from the normal sort of approach that I have always embraced and I've always talked to my students, which is you got to sit down. You got to pay attention. You got to be really focused. You know, the whole 10,000 hours thing and quality, deliberate right. practice and all this stuff and don't practice mistakes. So it's a little bit of a departure from that where in this case, there's no pressure. In any one session, there's no pressure because we just do it every day. So it's not like, okay, I, I, this is my practice now or this is my lesson. It has to be good. I need to, because I think what, what I've, what I'm sort of figuring out through this experience is that that amount of pressure that can be kind of exhausting and also can lead to some bad habits in the player. So a real common roadblock that Pipers, I think all musicians or maybe even athletes too, that we face is sort of 
poor technique or bad form. And a lot of it's caused by tension. You just tighten up when you're trying to do something that's challenging or you're, you're just sort of a little bit overwhelmed by the complexity of what you're doing. You just, you tighten up and then your, your, your form gets bad. And then that ends up being, uh, if that becomes a habit that becomes sort of a roadblock you have to get over. So really what we're doing here with our daily lessons is it's like the, the number one goal is, you know, have fun, learn something and do no harm. And what I mean by that is I'm just trying to be really careful that, you know, he avoids some of these pitfalls that we get into these bad habits and Mm -hmm. you can't avoid them all, but you know, try to learn a little something, have some fun and make sure that we don't get into any bad habits along the way. So it's been working. I'm amazed that a nine-year-old has the discipline, even with dad encouraging to do something for a hundred days plus straight. That's, that's, I I don't care. You could play video games with him for a hundred days straight and he'd take a day off somewhere in there. I mean, it's, that's an amazing feat right there. How long are the lessons though? Each, each day, how long? Five to 10 minutes. Sometimes we get onto a, sometimes we get onto a roll and we're just really having fun and we'll maybe go 15, 20 minutes, but it's that idea of, yeah, it's just a little bit. And what you notice, you know, I have taught young people before and even adults, you know, that there's a limit, you know, there's a limit Mm -hmm. to what you can take in. And even if you have the attention span for it at a certain point, it's just, um, you're just not getting that much out of it. There's only so much you can sort of digest. So in a normal lesson, it was a half an hour, an hour lesson, you know, in a normal lesson scenario, there's a certain amount of transitional time that sort of, hi, how you doing? What's going on? And sort of orienting ourselves into what are we going to talk about? What do you, you know, that sort of stuff. But with what we're doing every day, it's just, all right, just, just hit it, hit the ground running. Let's do this. And sometimes I'll, I will guide the lesson and say, okay, is this what we're going to do today? And some days I'll just give him the option to say, well, what do you want to do? Let's, what do you want to work on? And sometimes he wants to play something we've done before, or sometimes he's really hungry to, you know, say, dad, show me something new. So does, does he, how regularly does he practice? He doesn't practice at all. So it's just the, it's just the five to 20 minutes at tops daily. Every day, that's it. And I would say that's if awesome. a, if a, someone was practicing on their own, that would be great. If you got 20 minutes a day, seven days a week, that's good. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the, the way that our brains learn, you're better off having shorter sessions every day rather than, oh, I'm too busy. I'll do it tomorrow. And then a few days go by and then you're like, well, I got time on Sunday and I'm going to block it out. It's like, that's not how your brain works. You know, we're like, right. you need to sort of be snacking along the way and not just fasting. And then, you know, like a, a feast, right? Like some sort of yeah. a predatory snake, you know, eating once a month thing. Like our brains don't process information that way. So that's, that's very cool. So at 11, you started and then um, through high school and all that you were playing. Mm-hmm. And then you, you ended up at UPS. Yeah. And for those, those of you that think I'm talking about the Brown trucks, I mean, university of Puget sound. Yeah. What, what, why did you select you university of Puget sound? Yeah. So I was looking around different schools and, you know, I was looking at schools back East and some schools down in California and, um, toured up at Puget sound, loved the campus. Uh, at that point I was really certain what I was going to do with my life, which was, uh, I was going to go to medical school 
That was my plan oh. when I was a teenager. I was very driven. I was very academically driven. And they had a great health sciences advising program. So for young pre-med types like myself, UPS was the place to go. In fact, in my, in my freshman dormitory, I had three roommates and we were all pre-med students and uh, none of us actually ended up going to medical school. But I think that's part of the, you know, that's part of the learning process. So I have a real, I can understand when I meet a young person who's totally driven and totally certain on their life's path. And I also, you know, can understand how the things can change really quickly. You know, you go to college, you are exposed to some different things, you grow and develop. And I always, uh, I always had a sense that bagpipes were going to be a big part of my life. I didn't have okay. a sense of how that was going to be. Um, there really wasn't anyone that I could look to to say, okay, this is what, how you can make a living as a bagpiper. Uh, all the great pipers that I knew had day jobs. Right. It was sort of they were very, very intense on this hobby, basically, and sort of like semi-professional in terms of their dedication, but not professional in terms of making any money to pay the bills. Right. So there were some pipers in Scotland who would teach in the public schools. There's some of that going on. And then there were, of course, pipers in the Scottish army. So that's one way you could go. But those were not options for me. So I didn't have a, a clear sense of okay, well, this is how you're going to commit your life to bagpipes and also have a job. So that was part of uh, what I had to figure out. And, um, you know, finished my pre-med stuff uh, and took the MCATs in college, although never never applied to medical school. Um, I ended up getting a psychology degree. Um, and that was the start of, you know, me finding that an academic discipline that really connected with what I was interested in. And I'm still very interested in many of those topics that I was first introduced to in the psych department, you know, how people learn sensation and perception stuff about how our brains interpret music and rhythmic sounds and pitch. I did my senior project on music perception and um, there's a field called psychophysics where it's sort of the interplay between stimuli in the physical world and then how we perceive it. So it's sort of a sensation and perception thing. And it just absolutely sort of brought together some of my interest that I had, you know, sort of like biological medical sort of stuff with the science and then with music. And in addition, you know, in my major learned about, you know, studied learning and behaviorism and motivation Um one of my favorite courses was um, um, a 400-level course that was sort of an introduction to some clinical psychology. And very much, I still think about that course in terms of, you know, we did a behavior change project. So, I mean, that's a big part of learning an instrument is sort of like setting a goal and observing your behavior and figuring out your personal obstacles and your things that motivate you. And, you know, so it was very formative. And, you know, I still think about that kind of stuff. And I still read a lot of books on that sort of personal development, motivation, learning, um, totally applicable. And I use that in my teaching uh, and in my own playing. I was, was going to say it, it's, it sounds like, you know, unintended consequences of you, of your, of your college led you right to, to being an instructor. I'm looking here. So you were taking trips to the Coeur d'Alene piping school which I joke it's in Idaho, so it's dead to us, but it's so close to the border that we'll talk about it. But 
the question comes to mind is, I don't think of cord, I don't think of bagpipes and cordelain in the same breath. Now that's because I'm not an aficionado, but tell us about this cordelain piping school and why you would go. What was the draw? Yeah. So, um, you know, we got to go back 20, 30 okay. years pre-internet, you know, so before okay. YouTube, before email, you know, there were pipers around the world and, you know, really intensely, you know, into this hobby and this community. And mm-hmm. here in the Northwest, there's actually a very high standard of um, pipe bands, piping and drumming. And I grew up in Portland, live now in, in Washington State and Seattle, but all the way from Portland up to Vancouver, BC, and sort of Spokane and into Coeur d'Alene is this really strong community. And we have all our Highland games and our festivals. Mm-hmm. So before we were doing stuff online, Pipers would travel. We would travel. I would travel as a kid all the way up to Vancouver for these big competitions. And we okay. would just go wherever we had to go to, to, you know, hook up with our, you know, our fellow Pipers. And I don't know the exact history of it, but I think there were some, um, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know the history of it, but the the place to go, there was this two week summer camp that was in Coeur d'Alene. They had it at North Idaho College, and okay. they got pipers from Scotland. That's where I met Pipe Major Evan McRae, Andrew Wright. These great pipers from Scotland, pipers from all across Canada and the Northwest, and even further would come for this two week thing. And it was just a dream for you know a young kid to be there and staying up late and sneaking out of the dorms and just piping morning till night and swimming in the lake and. It was just just an amazing experience. And I'm still friends with some of the pipers that we met as as kids at that camp. Well, you mentioned Evan McRae and Andrew Wright. And also there's so it's I'm reading from Wikipedia, full disclosure, and I'm gonna stop because I'm gonna you're gonna have to say a word for me. As well as making an annual trip to the Coeur d'Alene Piping School in Idaho, where he studied I can't say it, but basically it's the Please help me out here. I mean, I'm the making fun of myself. Word that starts with P. Yes, the word yeah. that starts with P. Please help me. Yeah, P. Brach. <laughs> you can do a little bit in there. P. Brach or P. Brach. Okay, and that's a Gaelic, Scottish Gaelic word. Uh, it means piping, literally, mm-hmm. but it's a specific form of bagpipe music. And unless you really have been into the piping community, you may have never have heard this type of music. But a lot of pipers, they you know, they love it. These these tunes are. Um, really long. They're quite complex. Um, okay. It can have sort of a mesmerizing effect. They start out quite slow and then they sort of build in complexity. It's a theme and variations. And these tunes might be a short one, might be seven minutes long. The longer oh. ones go up to 20, 20 minutes or more. So it's oh. sort of a lot of pipers consider it the highest echelon of our repertoire is this Pibrach music. And uh, okay. my first teacher, you know, got me into that. And then I was lucky to be able to study with Andrew, Andrew Wright and many other great pipers over the years. Wow. Okay. Wow. Um, side note, how does, how does one manage to play a bagpipe for 20 minutes? Well, you I just mean, gotta be in shape, really. Yeah. So, you know, having your, having your uh, pipe set up properly is a huge part of it, right? So unlike... Okay a concert pianist that just shows up and the pianos, the Steinway is just sitting there waiting for you. A bagpipe right. is a very personalized thing, you know, as, as you know, any instrument, you know, that a player has their own instrument, 
But in particular, the bagpipes, it's, you know, has to fit you physically. So getting it set up so it's the right size and everything is, is right for you. But there's also, there's four reeds in there, you know, saxophone and a clarinet oboe, they have one reed bagpipe has four because you have the three drones on your shoulder. You have a bass drone and two tenor drones. Each one of those drones has a reed inside it. And then the chanter, which is where the, the, you're playing your fingers, where the melody comes out, there's a reed in there as well. So getting everything set up so that the instrument fits you, that it's airtight and uh, that your reeds are set up properly and efficient. That's a huge part of being a piper. It's, um, you know, you have to sort of be a bit of a mechanic in terms of getting your, the whole machine really working well. All right. So these questions, total acknowledgement. I know what a bagpipe looks like, but I really, I didn't know there was reeds. So there we go. I mean, I know nothing about this instrument. So I'm going to try to relate it to another instrument that I know a little bit about, which but I, it's the only way I can process it at the moment. Do you, ha- do you play more than one bagpipe? I mean, do you have like guitar players have, you know, some of them have acoustic guitars, some of them have electric guitars, and then they have, you know, this and that. Is that, is that similar in the bagpipe world? Do you have different? I do. Bagpipes? I have, I have, I have multiple sets of pipes. I'd, I'd okay. say a lot of pipers, they maybe have one set. Um, I used to be like that for years. So I have my main instrument is, you know, what people think about the bagpipes is the guy in the kilt marching around with the drone sticking right. up. So that's what we call the great Highland bagpipe. And that is from, okay. you know, originally sort of flourished in the Highlands of Scotland. So that's the Scottish pipes. There's also something called the Scottish small pipes and small pipes are much quieter. Um, you might hear them in a folk band, like a Scottish folk band with guitar and fiddle, that sort of thing, okay. sort of like a, a pub kind of little, little folk band. In a way, it has a similar tonality to the Irish pipes. So the Irish, the Illin pipes, the Irish pipes, which you may have seen, they don't blow into the bag. They have a bag like I do on the Scottish pipes, but instead of blowing, they have a bellows under the other arm. So they have both both arms going. Okay. So there are other forms of pipes. And, you know, I, I think Scotland is most famous for bagpipes, but also Ireland. There are pipes in Asturia and Galicia in Spain. There are pipes throughout much of Europe. There are Swedish bagpipes, Bulgarian bagpipes. So all throughout Europe at some point there were, I've seen a Estonian bagpipe. So different pipes. Huh. And and what they have in common is, you know, some sort of flute type thing, a flute uh, chanter type thing, which is like a flute with a reed in it. And then a bag. That's what they all have in common. And then you have these additional drones that you can stick on it from zero drones up to, I think, four or five, depending on the variety. So that's what that's, you know, broadly, that's what a bagpipe is, is it's a reed instrument with this bag. And what the bag allows you to do is have continuous sound uh, and take a breath. So unlike a flute or a whistle or something where you're blown directly on the reed, those stop playing as soon as you stop blowing or they require circular breathing with the bag. You're maintaining the air pressure with your arm by pressing on the bag and then you're blowing. You're just topping off the bag and just keeping it full. Oh, okay. So that's actually a big skill in being a piper is your ability. We call it blowing steady, although it's not blowing. It's a, it's a combination of blowing and squeezing with the arm, but your ability to, to keep the pressure going 
for the length of your performance, and very importantly, to keep a really steady pressure. That's just a big, that's one of the big skills of, of being a piper and to get a really great sound that's in tune, that stays in tune. That's, you know, it's uh, all the, all the parts are working together requires that you maintain that really steady foundation of uh, steady pressure in the bag. That's a particular skill. Oh, this is this is fascinating to me. So after UPS, so I, I'm a little. So what's confusing to me is you graduated from UPS, but then you ended up doing the Simon Fraser University Pipe Band. So that's up in Vancouver, or mm-hmm. up, right? I think it's is it technically in Vancouver? Or is it in Richland? I can't remember. It's but, in um, Burnaby. Okay, so I was wrong both times. Okay, thanks. Uh, <laughs> why? Why did you go? What? Why there? Is it what's, yeah, why was so, that part of the journey? Yeah. So the, the Simon Fraser University pipe band is one of the all time great pipe bands in the world. Um, okay. Six time world champions. Uh, I played in the band for 19 years. And in that time we won the world's three times. So this is a really very well-known band and one of the most successful bands in history. And the way that the band works is that you don't have to be, a student of the, of the band, the band is sponsored by the university and, and affiliated with the university. And they opened it up, you know, right, you know, in the early, early days because they wanted to have a world class caliber band. So players from around the world come to play in the SFU pipe band. And I was one of those. And that was a big draw for me coming from Oregon is like, well, what do I do with my life? Well, there's this very strong pull north right. to get up right. to Vancouver, which is sort of the, the hub of piping and culture in this region. And one of the strongest piping bagpipe communities in the world outside of Scotland, you, you absolutely have to say this region in this sort of Vancouver, BC, lower mainland, Seattle, Bellingham kind of region, a very strong, um, you know, just some really good bands and, and, I think SFU and the guys who play in the SFU band are a big part of that. And so it was a big attraction for me to come north and then to spend all those years commuting from here up to Vancouver. For 19 years, I was driving up there for band practice. And we won the world, as I said, traveled the world. You know, we played at Lincoln Center. We did the Sydney Opera House. Um, oh, just- wow you know, Glasgow Royal Concert Hall. So a very well-known band and a huge, huge part of my life for, you know, a couple decades was playing in that band. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a question. I, I ask all musicians on this, on my show, two part question. And I think you might have some interesting answers. So as a bagpipe player, where is the, is there a venue in Washington state? It's gotta be Washington state venue that you enjoy playing at a lot like what's your favorite place to play the pipes publicly that's question number one question number two is if you're listening to music where's your favorite venue to see music performed at it can be bag I'll, on that one i'll let you be bagpipe or anything you want to listen to but just yeah where where's a bagpipe player do you want to play in washington state i i almost never miss folk life i love folk life the northwest folk like Folk, Northwest Folklife Festival at Seattle Center. And I just, I just love everything about it because it's free. 
So I don't get paid, but we don't have to pay to go in. And every year I, you know, send in my application and most years I get a chance to play there and they give me a venue and I get to go do a 30 minute show and just, I love the sort of the, um, the casualness of it and sort of the random drop-ins, you know, a lot of the sort of bagpipe specific things that I play, you know, sort of like a inside community kind of thing. And then, and those are great, but I love playing at folk life and just having the, just the sort of the, the community there. And it's also a chance for my friends and, you know, folks I know around town to say, Hey, come see me at folk life and come down and just, you know, lay your blanket down on the grass and grab a beer afterwards. And, and, uh, that's become even more part of our family tradition now that we've got the kids and we'll go down there, I'll do my show and then we'll hang around and wander around and see some of the amazing stuff that, you know, you never know what's around every corner at folk life. So, um, love playing there. Um, in terms of, I've also played at Benaroya Hall a couple times, and that is absolutely world class. I mean, I've done, I've played solo a couple times on that stage in Benaroya Hall in the big theater, and it's, I mean, the, the acoustics there. It's a beautiful building. The acoustics are incredible, and um, there's a there's a group based in Mount Vernon called the Celtic Arts Foundation, and they put on a fantastic. Um, piping well they do stuff all year all year round they put on the Skagit Valley Highland Games up in Mount Vernon and then they put on this master's concert that's been at Benaroy Hall for many years and I've played there a couple of times and they bring in the best of the best from Scotland and Ireland and Cape Breton and Canada and and that is a I mean that's a that's an absolute top of the list you know thrill for me to be on that stage because the the acoustics are just incredible and for a solo piper I mean, so much of it is the sound, you know, and a lot of times we're playing in venues where it just doesn't doesn't have the opportunity for the sound to expand and to sort of ring out like that. Okay. How about when you when you go watch music, when you go see people perform, where's a venue that you like to go to? Oh, gosh. Well, um, just recently, we've just discovered Jazz Alley, Demetrius Jazz Alley downtown, and seen some really cool shows there. Um, again, like a you know, it's sort of like a dinner theater type venue. Right. Um, where else have we gone? Yeah, that's what I can think of right now. That's okay. Yeah. All right. So you 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 said folk life, so you kind of. I'm going to go go in a direction here. So, and I told you when we talked on the phone, you know, I. I I can't remember if how exactly I, I stumbled upon you, but I stumbled on your website, bagpipe lessons. And, and I'm looking at it right now and I'm looking at this picture and I'm, I'm, if you would have saw my face, I was like, huh? Just threw me. And so I reached out. I mean, it, the, you know, I reached out cause it's like, how on earth? So never in my life would I have thought that, the Grateful Dead and bagpipes would be on the stage, same stage. And it really wasn't because you were with Bob Weir and, and Rat Dog, but still. How on earth did that happen? And what was it like? Yeah, so I um, a really good friend of mine who's a musician, um, bagpiper, plays a bunch of Great. It plays a bunch of instruments and owns a fantastic studio up in Arlington named Ed Littlefield Jr. And Ed is well known on the folk music scene and he's involved in a lot of 
different non okay. nonprofits around town. So I got to know Ed through piping. We've become great friends, and I've recorded up at his studio. And um, you know, our families are are really close. Ed's an old friend of Bob Weir, so I met uh, Bob through Ed. And the um, what I didn't know at the time was that Ed, who's a piper, had played pipes at Bob's wedding. So there's like photographs, oh. Bob Weir's wedding. He is in a kilt. He's in the traditional Scottish thing, right? Okay. So he has this affinity for Scottish culture and bagpipes. And the first time I met Bob, he said that it had been a long time dream of his to do wharf rat with the bagpipes. And I thought, okay, I don't know wharf rat. I didn't say that out loud, but I was not a... <laughs> Dead, I'm, you know, you're, you're I, in a deadhead. Yeah, okay. I, you know, of course, many friends who were, and I knew that this, you know, they no, were right. a huge, humongous deal. But I, you know, I didn't. So I said, okay, great, wharf rat. You know, sort of like, give me a call. I'm your man. And uh, went home and you know did some YouTube research and tried to find all the recordings I could. And um, I can't remember how long it was after that, but I think within the year, he called me up phone rang and he called me up and said, Hey, we're coming to town and we're doing the more theater and let's do that wharf rat thing we talked about. So that was, Oh man, when was that? 2007 or something. So that was a while now. And it was incredible. And in fact, Ed, the Littlefield, he sat in and, and played some, um, I think he played some pedal steel on that. It's his main instrument. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And there's some videos of it up on YouTube. Fantastic experience. Just amazing. Just what you would imagine a normal person, a normal, non-famous, non-rock and roll person just getting brought into this um, incredible <laughs> venue. So, Menagerie of yeah, people. So, one, so the way that it worked, to talk a little bit about the set, is he said that, well, you know, at this point in the show, they do, they do a set called Stuff. And this was Bob Leaves the Stage, and they do kind of this big jam thing. And each guy in the band gets a chance to have a bit of a solo. So they had a saxophone player, bass player. And then Jay Lane, he said he's the last guy who does his sort of his solo thing. And he does this big drum solo. And he said, when I do my drum solo, then I'm going to call you out. And he called me out and I go to the middle of the stage. And then I think, I don't know what people were thinking, but the crowd went pretty wild when I stepped out there. <laughs> and then he said, you just play, just go nuts, just play something. And, I, and, and you know, I said, well, you know, do we, should we talk about what we're going to do? He said, no, just do whatever, just do whatever. And we'll join in. And that doesn't always, that doesn't always necessarily go well. You know, when we used to say that'd that, be terrifying. I mean, I knew what I was going to play, mean? but I wanted it to okay. be good. You know, I was just going to do okay. my thing. I said, you just do your thing and we'll just join in. And, uh, it ended up being great. And again, there's some grainy YouTube videos. Cause it just, it wasn't like the iPhone thing now that we have. And they just played along with me and we did this. I was playing these really fast up-tempo things and they're all just jamming along with me and it was amazing. So then that was oh. getting me on stage, big applause, Bob comes out and then sort of the, 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 the crowd noise comes down and then we went into Warfret. So that was the oh, first yeah. time and just, you know, again, just like a real magical, unbelievable moment, my, my rock and roll mm -hmm. moment there. <laughs> and then uh, a couple of years ago now, Maybe, gosh, I'm losing track of dates here, but maybe 2018 or something, um, I saw that Bob was coming back in town. 
And this time it was with Wolf Bros. So it was mm-hmm. just a trio. It was Bob and Don was and um, Jay Lane again on drums. And um, I think this time I just reached out to him and said, hey, I see you're coming back in town. It'd be great to see you and, you know, hang out or whatever. You know, I was just thinking to come and, you know, just see him at the show and maybe try right. to get a backstage, you know, just to say hi. And he said, let's do it right. again. We'll do, let's do two this time. So we did Warfrat. And then at the sound check, just came down early for the sound check with my wife, Rachel. And we just kind of tried a couple things and we ended up doing a uh, tune called lay my Lily down, which was from his uh, solo album. And I hadn't heard the song before, but we figured it out and it went, it, it worked so naturally with the pipes I thought it was a traditional Scottish song. It had this real Celtic mm-hmm. thing and it just really meshed well. And then I found out later it was an original that he'd written. So, but, oh, wow. um, and it, <laughs> and it just worked out great. And for this show, it was much more recent. And of course, Facebook and Instagram and social media is this huge, humongous presence now. And yeah, my whole like social media and email and everything just like exploded the next day. And um, it was cool. And, you know, Don was wrote or he did a little interview right around that same time as that show, um, because this was just the start of their tour. And what he said in this interview, I absolutely had the same experience, although for me, it was just one night. And he said it was something like the most magical, amazing experience of his life was to play with Bob and to experience just to be in this, um, this experience of, you know, his fans and the grateful dead, sort of the love and just the, the, the warmth. And I mean, I certainly felt that that night and, you know, have continued to, to experience that, you know, and it's just, uh, uh, yeah, just an amazing experience. And it is, um, I've never seen anything like it. And it really highlights on a really serious magnitude level of what music means to people. And, um, you know, and a reminder uh, to me as a musician of the power uh, that you, you have as a musician to give people an experience, a fun experience, uh, a communal experience maybe even a mm-hmm. transcendent experience. Um, so it's a great reminder of the power of, of music. And I don't take it for granted, you know? So maybe if they decide, if dead, um, dead and company decide to come to Washington on, uh, they're not booked for Washington at all this year that I saw, but maybe, maybe you can go and play at the gorge, but from a <laughs> technical standpoint question, if you were playing at a venue like the gorge, how how can the pipes be amplified? Because I'm not gonna if I'm you have you been to the Gorge Amphitheater? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I'm sitting back up on the hill and you're on that stage, I don't know that I'd necessarily hear the pipes yeah, without amplification. Yeah, you'd have to be amplified. So we'd have to be mic'd. And in fact, this last show at the Moore Theater, we should have been mic'd. You know, Bob thought it was too loud. Um, he mm-hmm. didn't want to mic it, but listening to some of the videos that people took from way back, it needed to be mic'd. So that's just something that we'll have to figure out if I play with them again, it's just to be real. So how do you, how do you mic bagpipes? 
Yeah, so you could just have a mic on a stand in front. And like when I'm in the recording studio, you have a mic in front on a stand for the chanter and then another mic in the back. But, but, you know, if this came up again and I was going to do some sort of rock show where we wanted amplification, I would probably get like a, like a wireless pack and have a couple Mm -hmm. of clip on mics. So I've played a few times with, uh, there's a piper from Galicia in Spain named Carlos Nunez and Carlos is a great friend and just an absolute virtuosic. I mean, he's a, he's a true sort of superstar in Spain. He really plays bagpipes and recorder, which are not what you would think of rock and roll superstar instruments. But Carlos is a fantastic musician and he tours around the world and he's had huge record contracts and he has a, that's what he has. He has like a wireless belt pack with these clip on mics on his instrument so he can dance around stage and run around and they get, it's it's close mics. (laughs) Right. I don't think of rock and roll with the bagpipe. Like, I mean, he's not like a rock and roll guy, but I mean, he absolutely absolutely rocks and, and, um, that's cool. So that's, I think what, I would need to do. And I've played around with some, some setups here at home. And I think that's the way to go is to close mic it. Okay. I mean, we could go so many different directions on from here, but why did you start competing? I mean, you, you've done a lot of, it looks like you've done a lot of competitions. Yep. Why? Like what's the deal? Like yeah. what's the thing with competition yeah. in bagpipes? Yeah. What's the yeah? What's the thing with competition bagpipes? <clears throat> so that is a big part of that's a big part of the lot of pipers of our life. So you, we have these Highland Games that you may be familiar mm-hmm. with these Scottish festivals, right? And you go to the Highland Games and there's bagpipes and drumming and pipe bands and the Scottish Highland dancing and the heavy events with the big guys throwing logs and stuff, and it's right. all competition based. So it's just, that's the primary uh, performance venue for um, a lot of bagpipers. Uh, and so I started out as a kid in Oregon, uh, going down to this thing that we call the Pipers Club. It's the Oregon Piper Society. And they would have these monthly get togethers where they'd have a little competition and a, a featured player. And you come down and listen to the featured player. And I went to that for years growing up in high school and competing and, you know, like they have competitions in other musical forms. They have classical music competitions and, sure. um, you know, high school bands have these sort of competitions and stuff. So it was just a, right. a thing and got really into it and was doing well locally and going to the Highland Games, then going up to uh, Vancouver and competing up there. And there's this, the way that the system is set up is you have a graded, you have these sort of graded categories starting out at grade five five, four, three, two, one. And when you win enough competitions in your grade, you get upgraded the following year and you work your way up. And then after grade one, the highest level is the, what they call the open or the professional category. So, okay. you know, I spent most of my life, you know, and that was until quite recently, that was the number one thing in my life was preparing to compete in these competitions and trying to win these competitions. I've traveled to Scotland. I've competed over there at the world sort of top level competitions. There's a, one of the top competitions in Scotland is called the gold medal. And the gold medal is held twice every year. And it's been going on for over 200 years, um, a great history. And I've played there and I've had many placings in the gold medal in Scotland. And my highest placing was third. So Mm -hmm. 
you know, and won lots of other trophies all over Scotland. So that was like a, a huge thing for me. And uh, I've take I've been to Scotland 31 times. So that tells oh, you wow. I've logged some miles. And that's, got you. <laughs> you know, I'd say that's on the high end. But, you know, for sort of top level pipers from around the world, you got to go to Scotland. That's the thing. You know, if you're going to if you're like an elite tennis player, you got to go to Wimbledon and the open like you, this is what you got to do. There's the Tour de France. It's like pick your thing. That's what you got to do is you got to go to Scotland and, and play against the best. Wow. So are you, when you're competing, are you playing, are you all playing the same music or is it, how are you, what are the criteria for judging? Right. So there would be different event categories. So there would be the Pibrach category that we talked about, these very long, intricate uh, pieces. There mm-hmm. is also uh, a set of three tunes, a March, Strathspey, and Real, MSR. So Pipers will mm-hmm. compete in their MSR. And then there there might be some other ones like a hornpipe and jig. So those would typically be the three categories. And for some of these events, you it's your own choice. So you just submit the tunes that you want to play. For some, some okay. of these events, you need to submit tunes. Uh, you, you need to give the judges options. You'll say, these are my four tunes. And they'll say, oh, let's have this one. They just pick it. So you need to be prepared okay. with a much larger repertoire than you will actually be playing on that given day. Um, okay. For some of the, these gold medal type events, they will actually have what they call a set list. And every year they'll say, these are the 12 Pibrachs for this year. And mm-hmm. then each player will, you'll select your four or six from their list of 12 and you'll submit those to the judges and they'll pick one. So from a, from 12 down to six or four down to one, and they wow. will pick the tune that you're going to play when the player before you begins, the stewards will come and they'll tell you your tune. And that's an intense moment. You can imagine you've traveled halfway across the world. You've spent an entire year practicing and really refining this, this repertoire to have these tunes, these four or these six tunes to be absolutely as perfect as they can be. And you have 15 or 20 minutes notice where they go, they hand you a little card or a little piece of paper with your tune on it. And then it's, your, your world wow. is now focused into that one tune. And then you got to scramble and get your tuning ready. And, and then you go out on stage. Oh. So it's an intense wow. moment. And it's sort of, yeah. you know, fairly, can be fairly adrenaline fueled at that point. So it's, it's, so yeah, go you, ahead. You, you, you mentioned three types of categories. Mm-hmm. What do you like to compete in? What's your, well, you know, if you were a gymnast or, you, you know, you, you, you're going to, you know, so what's your, right. You have your different thing, right? So I've right. done well in all the different categories over the years, but I think I'm probably similar. To, I, I would, I would say the Pibrach is, okay. is, and I think it's for a lot of pipers sort of, of who compete at my level, it's the most challenging. It's, um, it, and it's somehow it's, it's, um, yeah, it's the most challenging and it's the most sort of interesting and the most fulfilling. A lot, some of these tunes are hundreds of years old and the way that they've been taught is they've been handed down through the generations, through this sort of like oral tradition of learning it from your teacher. And of course, these days we have recordings and YouTube and CDs and everything. But before that, 
you would learn this tune from your teacher and he learned it from his teacher and, and it, it went back through the generations and you can actually trace your lineage all the way back 600 years from how you got this tune. Now, of course, there, there, it's less like that now because you have influences from many people because of everything being online and also people travel. It's not that you lived in your one village and learned from this one person. Right. But it's, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what the I don't know what other sort of musical form that I could um, connect it to, but it can be quite personal how you express these tunes, and it's also a little bit of a um, it's sort of a challenge to figure these tunes out because these some of these tunes they come from these old manuscripts that are a couple hundred years old, and you're trying to figure out how this tune should be expressed properly. And you have some amount of personal expression that you can put into it, but also there's a historical tradition here, right? So, I mean, you could look at a great well-known classical piece like a Mozart or something and you would go, well, you know, if you're a great performer and a world-class famous performer, you get to do it your way, but you also want to be true to, the piece because it is a well-known piece right. that has sort of a tradition behind it. So you want to sort of fulfill people's expectations, but also put your own little bit of a twist on it. So, so you, you mentioned teaching and, you know, through the years being the lessons being handed down teacher to the student and you, you run, you run a very modern sounding bagpipe lessons.com. <laughs> what was, what inspired you to start teaching bagpipes and did you start out in in person or did you did you start on this online school was that the way you got started yeah well to go back to our we were talking about earlier you know so i went to college and i had to figure out what i was going to do with my life so graduated from college had a job for a year a real job and i knew that was going to be a temporary thing and then that second year after i was out of college I started to try to figure out what was what was going to work. And this was mm-hmm. in the late 90s and the internet was just starting to be there's we were starting to get an inkling of what it might be and registered my website bagpipelessons.com and at that point websites were pretty basic. It was a photo and a, you know email me here, a little bit of just like a bio, right? Right? And at that point, I was teaching. I was teaching in-person lessons that, like the people have done for forever. Drive to your teacher's mm-hmm. house, sit down for an hour, have a lesson sort of thing. And moved up to Seattle. My wife, we weren't married at the time, but we were together and we moved up here. And we're actually still in the same neighborhood up here in North Seattle. Started my teaching business. And that was a way that you could make a living as a musician and it's, it works for a lot of people, you know, guitar lessons, Mm -hmm. piano lessons, bagpipe lessons. And what's good about Seattle is it's a big enough city that, you know, you wouldn't be able to be a full-time bagpipe teacher in a, in a smaller place. Wenatchee would not be a great place to have a bagpipes. Well, you could do it now because so that transitions into what I'm. So in 2003, Apple released their webcam called the iSight webcam. 
And I've always been a big Mac guy. And when that came out, I said, I got to get one of those because they released it with this program called iChat AV. And it was video chat. It was like mm-hmm. before Skype, before Zoom, this was the thing. And at this point, I had been studying with Michael Cusack. And Mike is the the most uh, winningest piper that the United States has we've ever had. Mike won both gold medals in Scotland and all the top prizes back in the 80s and into the 90s. And he's retired from competing now. But Mike is a fantastic player and one of my mentors and an incredible teacher. So I was studying with Mike and I was flying to Houston to take lessons with him a couple times a year. And then we would meet up. He would come to, you know, he'd come up here to teach a workshop or I'd we'd meet up somewhere where we would be both teaching at a workshop in Kentucky or wherever. So I was studying with Mike in person as much as I could, but I was also flying down there at great expense. So when this eyesight camera came out, I bought two of them and I sent one to Mike and I said, we got to try this thing. And we did. And I have, I actually have a screen capture of, I did a screen capture of the very first online bagpipe lesson in history, I think. Because I can't verify that nobody else did it, but I'm cert- but I'm pretty sure that that was the very first one. And I thought, son of a gun, this thing really works because you have the immediacy of the mm-hmm. conversation, you know, the immediate feedback. It's not like I made a recording and emailed it to him and then he wrote me back. It was like, stop, do that again. And the face to face contact. So it's better than phone because you can see and you have a, you can, you know, read emotions right. better and he can see stuff. So that was it. Pretty quickly after that, I put it up on my website that I was now the first person in the world to be offering, um, I think I called them interactive multimedia lessons or something like that. And then I called them interactive webcam lessons. And then, and then, okay. and then I tried, there were a few other programs that allowed you to do uh, cross-platform video chat and eventually Skype came out and then it was Skype. It was Skype lessons mm-hmm. for, um, you know, more than a decade there. So what you, yeah. let me interrupt you. What are you using now? What platform do you I'm use using, now for I'm lessons? using Zoom. I still have a couple okay. students who want to do FaceTime or Skype, but mostly Zoom. Um, okay. Yeah. And I know there's some other options out there, but it's just finding something that, you know, has the audio and the video and good enough quality. And mm-hmm. that's the main thing. So I've been doing that. So I was and- the first person to be teaching Bagpipe Lessons Online going back to 2003. So you've been doing this almost 20 years online, yeah. 18 years. Now. Yeah. And, you know, wow. it started out mostly in person and a few online and it's grown. Mm-hmm. The online side side of it has grown because it's, you know, the whole world is the market now. So I have students in Australia, Scotland, wow. Europe, Alaska, Hawaii, all across the U.S., Canada. Um, I've had students in all kinds of places. You know, I had a student who lived way, way, way out in rural South Africa and we we're doing bagpipe wow. lessons, you know, um, the internet That's connection cool. to Hawaii from Seattle is incredibly fast. Sometimes the connection <laughs> okay. to Hawaii will be better than it is to other parts of, you know, the mainland. It's just, it's, you know, the fiber optic cable or whatever. So the barriers are, you know, they're being torn down. Yeah, they're dissolving, which is just a fantastic thing for, you know, for everybody. But I've noticed it in what I do because 
bagpipers are spread out. And it's not as easy to find a bagpipe teacher the way it might be to find a piano teacher or a guitar teacher or, you know, something like that. That's, so it's been really, really, the internet has been wonderful for, for all these niche type communities, finding people, finding content, connecting online. You know, we're in the midst of this technological revolution that's just, you know, it's just amazing. Right. So I got a, I got a, email in 2012 or end of 2011 from a reporter at the New York times. And she said that she was looking into um, the growth of Skype music lessons. And would I, could I talk to her? So of course I emailed her back because that was sounded like a good opportunity to talk to somebody. (laughs) And we emailed and then we talked on the phone and um, you know, she was working on this story and then she wanted to schedule a photo shoot. So she they actually sent a photographer to my student's house, not to me, to my student's house. And it was one of my students, John McClure, who's a pathologist in the Twin Cities. So I'm doing a Skype lesson with him. And then there's this guy with his camera sort of in the background, you know, taking <laughs> pictures of him. And then I can't remember, like the next week or something, she said that she emailed me and said, unless there's a major international incident, the story is going to be on A1. And I wrote back and said, that sounds good. What's A1? She said, that's the front page. So thank goodness there wasn't anything that horrific that happened in the world for me, but there was my picture and this article on the front page of the New York times in 20 early 2012. And it's John playing the pipes with his music stand in his little practice room and there's his laptop and there's my face on the laptop. So that was pretty cool. And then, you know, my Google analytics, like it's spiked like 30 X of normal because kabloom, you know, but that was very uh, cool. I'm surprised the, the, the hosting platform, your server, the server that you were using didn't, you know, stumble on that. Yeah. Wow. But, that's so you were on the front page of the New York. Times. Yeah. I, Not just the New York times. You were the, the front. I know. Page of the, I know my, my, wow. my brother, he had, worked at a university doing their website previously. And he said the president of the university wanted to get their university name on the front page of the New York times. That was his goal. And it never happened, but I got it. So, but what I didn't know was that it was a bigger thing. You know, I was just sort of hunkered down doing my thing, teaching online, trying to push ahead and make use of these technologies that were becoming available. And what I actually didn't know until I read the article that I was in was that this was a broader thing that was happening. Students love it because they can find a teacher that they connect with, not just one that mm-hmm. happens to be local. Parents love it because they don't have to drive. They don't have to worry about right. this other stuff. So there's so many advantages to it. And, you know, there are some certainly some advantages to being in person. But mm-hmm. for a lot of people, it's just – in many situations, it's absolutely the best way to go is to this online lesson thing. So it's a, it's a thing. It's a really big All thing. Right. Besides teaching though, you created some bagpipe products. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've got a, and I'm, yeah, I can think yeah. about that. So I'm, I'm looking at your, the ultimate bundle. So it's called the tone protector ultimate bundle. It's got a, a chanter cap, a reed case, bagpipe gauge, read poker in a phone mount. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I'm really scratching my head on what these caps do. Right. Because it looks like it has like a a humidifier. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay. So the thing about reeds, and you talk to any woodwind player, is that that reed is the key to if you're okay. going to have a good sound and a happy life or not. Because everything about the sound of your instrument how it sounds, how it feels, if it stays in tune. It's all about the reed. And particularly a huge factor is the, the moisture content in the reed. So that these cane, you know, cane is like a natural material. It's like a bamboo kind of material. And pipers spend typically just huge amounts of worry and stress and time fooling around with their reeds, you know, and bagpipes get a bad reputation because, you know, people talk about what an out of tune bagpipe sounds like. And there's a certain amount of truth to that because the pipes are loud. It's continuous. And if it's out of tune, it's just, it's not a good sound. Nobody's having a good time Mm -hmm. at that point. So having a great sound is important and having pipes that sound great and feel great is largely determined by that reed and the moisture content in the reed. So, Okay. That was the challenge. And what I came up with was this cap that goes over your reeds. When you're done playing your pipes, you pull the chanter out of the bag, you put a little cap over it that screws on, doesn't touch the reed. It just, it's a little dome that goes over the reed. Now they've had these chanter caps for years and they're made out of wood or plastic and they protect the reed from physical damage, but they do nothing for the environment that the reed sits in. And that was this innovation was this chanter cap that has a digital readout on the top. So it will tell you the humidity that's in the cap. And it has these moisture control packets that will deliver the optimal level of of humidity to that reed by controlling the humidity in the air inside that cap. So that's called the tone protector. And you can think about it as a digital humidor for your reed that attaches over the reed and it uses the same kind of technology that someone might use in their humidor to store their high-end cigars, these little moisture control packets. And then you got the little readout that tells you that it's doing what it's supposed to do. So I worked on this and was, you know, 3d printed some prototypes and trying to figure out the physical form factor and was using it. And it was, remarkable the the impact that it made instantly and what i hadn't realized until i had this product working in the prototype phase was that so much of the hassle and the uncertainty and the unpredictability that we pipers face with our instrument like some days you play it and it's like oh it sounds good other days you put your pipes together and it's like it's all squirrely and and crazy and weird but so much of that is caused by a fluctuating um, moisture content in the reed. And you don't even realize it because we, we don't feel it. Like if it's really humid or mm-hmm. really dry, you feel it. But you won't, like in a, even in a given day, it might fluctuate 50% relative humidity. You don't know it. But that's mm-hmm. happening to your reed. It's constantly sort of soaking up moisture and drying out. And that's what contributes to that uh, unpredictability and that hassle factor with these reeds having the tone protector eliminates almost all of that. So oh, wow. um, 
so it's been a very interesting process. That was, it's been my most successful product, but working with patent lawyers, working with manufacturing, working with sort of supply chain type thing, but it's been really, really cool. It's been used by, it's being used by many of the top bands in the world. Some of the absolute, like the very best pipers in the world are using it as part of their, oh. you know, it's part of their toolkit to help That's- them. So it's been very cool. There's a, uh, there's a website called Pipes Drums, which is sort of like the main sort of online magazine for pipers. And um, I won some awards there, product of the year, Very that cool. kind of stuff. So that's been really cool for me as, a, as an additional part of, you know, what I'm doing in terms of trying to make an impact, right? So I started out with performing and teaching and then teaching online and then developing online content. And now I've gotten into this product business, which has been really it's been really, um, I have to say, it's been really rewarding to hear from players when they tell me how much it helps and how much it's helped them enjoy their playing or spend less time tuning. And I really do mean that. The first huh. year I went to Scotland after the Tone Protector had been out for a year, it was really cool to have these players of all levels coming up and saying, oh, man, this is the best. Thank you. Oh, that's... And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm just... I'm always kind of thinking that way in terms of, well, if this is a problem for me or if this is a problem for my students, like what can we do? Is there, is there, sometimes it's a more sort of like a learning technique or a practice technique or an exercise, or sometimes it's a way to a a process that you can do with your equipment or a different way to set up things. Or sometimes it's a, it's a, it's a new piece of equipment that needs to be, you know, invented. So I've always kind of thought, of things as, okay, well, this is a problem. This is something that's annoying, or this is something that is a difficulty. Well, instead of just struggling with it and accepting that as what the way it always has to be, maybe there's something we can do about it. And again, it's not always a gadget. Sometimes it's an approach or it's a way of thinking about it, or it's a technique, but sometimes it it actually is a, a product. I remember reading about Eddie Van Halen's patents years ago. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and first I thought that's kind of, that's kind of unexpected. And then you can actually look at the patents and he has patents for, you know, a peg head on a guitar or he had a patent for the little, you could flip up the little, little table so he could sort of tap on his guitar. He's got patents for amps and stuff. Well, after thinking about it for like a minute, you think, well, of course he has a patent. Who else would know about the limitations of guitar equipment or who else would know better about what needs to be out there than Eddie Van Halen? And that was part of this I, little seed of like, huh, well, if I'm teaching all these people and I'm playing and I'm trying to be the best I can be and I'm trying to help others achieve greater enjoyment or consistency or elevate their skill. And if I see that something is a problem and, and if I have an idea that could be a solution to that problem, well, then I should be the guy who comes up with it. You know, so because it's a little bit of imposter syndrome where you're thinking like, I'm not the, I mean, I'm not an inventor. I mean, patents, those are for other people. But then you kind of go, well, no, maybe I am the guy. Maybe I'm the guy who can come up with it. So it's been a, it's been a fun process of uh, how do you get a patent? Well, I don't know. Well, (laughs) you just, you, you know, you know, I had one of my students and we know, one of the absolute joys of doing what I do and teaching people over the years is you meet some very interesting people. And a lot of them are are quite accomplished in their own, you know, careers. 
So one of my students is a lawyer and he said, you know what, why don't we, I'd love to help you, you know, with this patent situation. So he set up a call with one of his colleagues and we had a three-way little Skype call and that guy's my patent lawyer now. And it's like, okay, I have a patent lawyer. All right, here we go. <laughs> you know, I so it's just kind of one of these things of um, having an idea and just sort of trying to pursue it a little bit and just kind of pull on that string and see what's at the end of it. And I have lots more ideas and, you know, can, can't do them all at the same time, but trying to, you know, trying to. Well, okay. so let me ask this question then, you know, you have a lot more ideas. What do you think's next for you? What's so now that we're kind of come out of the pandemic and we can leave the cave again and go outside and do things. Musically for you, I mean, you've, we, we've glossed over a lot of things you've, you've, you've recorded, you're, you're a composer, all of these things that we've just completely glossed over in this episode and we'll point links to where people can find out more about you when we're done with all this. But what do you think's next? What's on the horizon for you? What's, what's next? Yeah, great. So unfortunately, most of the in-person festivals in the Highland games are not happening this year, even though things are opening mm-hmm. up, which is absolutely, you know, we're also happy about that. It's just too much of a planning uh, timeline. Um, but sure. I'm looking forward to, you know, going out and seeing live music. I'm looking forward to doing more performances when these things come up. Um, another thing, I think sort of a mindset shift for me over this pandemic, you know, I know we all had similar experiences, but different experiences. But right. for me, there was so much uncertainty last spring in terms of what, what uh, you know, what's going to happen. It was quite frightening and all that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And for me, much of 2020 was kind of in a holding pattern. I'm teaching online. I'm like, we're just trying to see what's happening. And I think at the beginning of 2021, I just personally, I had this sort of feeling of, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Sort of like, sort of an acknowledgement of like, this is out of my control. But I had this thought of when this thing is over, I want to be able to look back and say, you know, I, I didn't squander the, the whatever time I had, right? So tr- just trying to make the most of it. And I know that that's, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that's for everybody, but I was sort of my thing was like, all right, I have this online-based business. I have this opportunity. Um, I have a loyal, dedicated student base. Well, let's see what we can do. Let's be creative. And, you know, one of the things that I did was I've been growing my online, I have a membership now. I've had it for years, but I've really expanded it over the last year. It's called the Inner Circle Membership. Mm-hmm. And people get access to this huge website of lessons that you can just watch videos, tunes, sheet music, just watch anytime you want. It's called the studio. Oh, wow. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of lessons here. And I also do weekly live um, Zoom classes, these live sessions. Okay. So these have been very popular and they've been really, really fun for me to be able to engage live. And that was something that came out of the pandemic was, what can I do now that we're, I've been teaching online one-on-one, but what the, to do some of this like exciting interactive live group classes. So I'm, I'm going to continue to be expanding that because the people who are on my inner circle, they just, they seem to really love it. I get a lot out of it. Um, mm-hmm. that the, the interactive element is great. Uh, I am working on a book, uh, a tune book. So what Pipers do is they will, they will publish a book of tunes 
many famous pipers through the years have have published their books and I've written tunes and I've won um, composing competitions, but I haven't published my own book. So I'm working on that this year. I've also, I'm, I am producing a series of recordings of great pipers. So we actually recorded the first piper back just before the pandemic. And we're going to be looking at getting that out um, by the end of the year. So we're recording it up at Sage Arts, which is up in Arlington. That's Ed Littlefield Studio, where I've recorded. And that's one of these absolutely world-class studios. Bagpipes sound incredible in there. So we want to get this CD out. But the plan is to release one or two per year and to capture some of the great pipers who are, you know, friends of mine and to get them into this mm-hmm. world-class studio and to really capture these great pipers. So that's another thing, you know, sort of doing a bit of a kind of whatever you want to call it, record producer type thing. Right. Um, another thing that I'll, I'll mention that I started um, or that has come back during the pandemic big time has been this online competition. So we talked about how mm-hmm. big competition is for pipers it was really hard when this pandemic hit and everything was canceled because that's how pipers perform. That's how we get motivated to practice. That's how we come together as a community. In 2011, I started the world's first online bagpipe competition. And (laughs) instead of performing live in front of a judge at a Highland games, you would record your video and then submit it to the judge and the judge would watch the video and watch all the videos and award the placings. So just like in a in-person competition, and then every player gets a, a critique sheet of comments from the judges. And that's a really big part of why Pipers like to compete. Well, you know, if you can win, but not everybody can win, but everybody can get feedback from a, a judge. So I started that back in 2011, did a few of those. They were really successful. We had hundreds and hundreds of entries and then got busy with kids and tone protectors and, you know, my, my, my life got busy in other ways, but I always had this thought that I wanted to bring back the online competition. Well, March, 2020 happens. Everything's getting canceled. I thought this is the moment now where this is again, to just go back to that time, it was really frightening. And it was very, um, it was, it was almost disorienting. Like what, like what's mm-hmm. happening here? And well, what do you mean my kids can't go to school? And what do you mean we're not having the Highland games? And so I, I thought this is the perfect time um, for me to be able to give back to the community, my piping and drumming community, because I had this online experience and I had already set up this model. I basically invented this, this model for this online piping competition. So we brought it back last spring. I think we got 1600 entries from pipers and drummers around the world, 84 different events. I think I had 45 judges, great world champion players from Ireland and Scotland and New Zealand and and all over. And it was a really, a wonderful thing. We made a really big donation to a COVID related um, charity as part of that. So the online competition was like this really cool thing. We did two of them last year. We did another one this spring. We were just launching another one this summer. So I think it's proven that it's a a rewarding thing for our competitors. You know, we hear from these Mm -hmm. players who are very thankful to be able to do something that's global and community and gives feedback and an opportunity, sort of some motivation. So even when the pandemic's over, 
you know, I look forward to seeing everybody at the Highland Games and in person. But I think these online competitions are going to continue just because they're just one more way that people can, um, you know, feel engaged with something that they love to do. So my takeaway from all of this is you don't do much. You sit around the house and you, you know, watch reruns of some TV show. Totally. But when you're not immersed in the world of, of piping, what do you guys like to do? What's fun for you around home? What, where do you guys go? What's the family like to do? What's out? What do you guys, where do you explore? Let's ask that. So, I love traveling. We've been doing a lot of traveling in the Northwest over the last year since we're not flying anywhere. But, you know, I have two young kids um, and we just love doing active stuff going. And, you know, if, if if you have to say, what's your favorite thing to do in the world? I would say shared experiences with my, with my family. I mean, just okay. sometimes it's music. Sometimes it's going out to eat. Sometimes it's going for a bike ride. We did about 300 miles of bike riding in our neighborhood last spring. Like we were, we were just oh. like, okay, let's get on the bikes every day. Get out there. Um, one of our favorite spots is getting up to the San Juans, going up to Lopez Island and just enjoying the Lopez. <laughs> love Lopez getting okay. out there. And um, yeah. So th- that's, you know, the uh, going up yeah. to, uh, you know, going up and swimming in the river up in, um, you know, swimming on the still Guamish river, just getting, getting outside, okay. biking, hiking, swimming in the river jumping in the salt water. Um, that's I think our, our favorite thing to do. And then, and really go and loving to go out too. You know, we just, my kids are always saying, can we go out? I mean, to go out to dinner or go out to get, get a beer. We have a local microbrew place that has root beer on tap and the kids just want to go there and just be out, be social. Okay. So where do the kids want to go for dinner? If the kids are coming in, dad, we want to go to dinner tonight. And you, you know, you look at your wife and she's like, Okay. You know, where do they want to go? What's, what are the kids into? Like, like specific places or the types of places? Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, so we have great little places around here. Like I said, our local watering hole is called Broadview Tap House. And we'll go there and it's okay. very kid friendly, bunch of beer, food trucks, root beer, lemonade, and just okay. kind of a community hangout. Lots of families, lots of kids. Um, yeah. But, you know, my kids are adventurous. Okay. We, you know, we, we partake in all the, you know, various different types of food that you can get in Seattle from Thai food and sushi and Chinese food and pizza. So your kids, will your kids eat sushi? Oh, for sure. Yeah. See so many kids. I mean, what do they want? Chicken nuggets and, and, you know, fries. I mean, that's it. That's it. They'll be adventuresome and, and maybe have pizza. I'm kind of kidding, but the fact your kids will eat sushi. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, even the sushi chefs at the sushi counter will look down and be surprised at my five-year-old that's just pounding <laughs> raw salmon, you know? So we try to, you know, I think some of that is just temperamentally based on just sort of how you are, but we try to, right. we also try to encourage it, you know, as much as we can, because oftentimes, you know, you try something and you're like, huh, son of a gun. I really like that. All right. I had, not what I thought. I had some grilled salad last night and I thought, Okay, grilled salad, whatever my wife ordered. And it's like, that's actually really good. Some romaine with a sort of a charred thing on it. So just an example okay. of, you know, trying to keep an trying okay. to keep an open mind. Yeah, there you go. So let's wrap this up. And why don't you tell people where they can find out more about all those 
bagpipe related things that you do. Great. So my website is bagpipelessons.com and you can find me there and you can click on the, you know, learn page if you're interested in uh, learning the pipes or, you know, want to get in touch with me about uh, arranging a performance. I still do some, I still do gigs from time to time or, um, did you hear that, Bob? Bob Weir? He still does gigs times to time. Yeah, so check out my website. Sign up for my mailing list. If you're, you can check out, I have a shop there. You can look at some of my products. Also on, you know, Facebook, you can find bagpipelessons.com on Facebook, also on Instagram, and trying to, you know, trying to stay active on those sites now. I have a small team that works for me now, and that's been, that's really, really helped with, uh, um, you know, helping make a bigger impact. So I have a, an assistant now who's uh, sort of my director of marketing and outreach. And that's been really, really good. So I can focus on some of the more, you know, creating new content, but also on some of the the bigger, bigger picture things, developing new products and stuff. And she does a great job with, you know, making sure that the right images and that the spelling's right when things go up on Instagram. So that's been fantastic. And I'd feel, you know, just really lucky that I have a great assistant and, that I'm able to do that. So. All right. Well, thank you so much for this. This was awesome. It's fat. It's fascinating to me. And I, I learned a lot, which is for me, the reason I do these things is I get to have conversations and learn. And I just appreciate you taking the time and sharing your passion with us. Absolutely. I love the conversation and thanks for having me. All right. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.